Good morning, Watermark family, and happy Mother's Day. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Becky Beers, and I'm the Director of Adult Education here at Watermark, and I'm also privileged to be a part of the teaching team. I hope that you've been enjoying our series called Emotional. You know, in week one, we talked about how sometimes we're ambushed by our feelings. But then in weeks two and three, by looking at the story of David, we talked about how we can name them and own them to work toward emotional health. Well, this week we're gonna talk about living it out and how emotional health really can make us more like Jesus. This is part of what it means, discovering wholeness in Jesus. And so we're gonna be talking about that this week. But in the spirit of Mother's Day, I wanted to maybe think about our families uh, and, and to get us started, asking some questions. For example, who was the favorite of your family growing up? Now, I know as parents, we're not supposed to have favorites, but maybe in your family, there was a clear favorite or maybe there was a clear black sheep. Or who in your family was the tattletale? Siblings often have labels like these placed on them just because of birth order. You know, the oldest, well, we all know they're bossy, right? I mean, they're trying to have control and they just wanna be in charge of everything. Whereas the middle child sometimes maybe feels unseen. They didn't get that time alone with their parents and so maybe they're labeled as the rebel or the creative one. They just have to find different ways of expressing themselves. Well, the youngest, they're spoiled, right? I mean, if you have a younger sibling, maybe you feel like they totally got it easier because mom and dad were just out of energy to discipline them the way that they did the older siblings. I know I'm the youngest of seven, and so I get accused of that all the time. Apparently, when I was growing up, I got away with murder. But we all have these roles to play, and really what these are are a set of scripts that are given to us about how to live our lives. Some of these scripts have been around for generations before you were even born. You were handed them before you could even speak, but they stay with us well into adulthood. And they come from different places. Some of them come from educational institutions or politics or culture, but the most influential scripts that are written for us come from our families. And they deal with things that you can and cannot do because of gender roles, or maybe how to handle conflict or what gives a person value or how do we define success as a family? Well, as true as that is for us today, it's definitely true of biblical characters. And so this week, we're gonna look at the story of a man named Joseph. Now, his story takes up about 13 chapters in the book of Genesis, about a quarter of the book. I, I encourage you, as a part of your reading plan this week, to read this story in its entirety. It's an amazing story. But when we meet Joseph, he's a, a young teenager, and like many of us, is trying to decide whether or not to accept the script that has been handed to him. And so we're gonna pick up in Genesis chapter 37 and we see just even in the first few verses, a really strong indication of the family dynamic going on here. It says, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of his father's wives. And Joseph brought their father, Jacob, a bad report about them. Joseph was a bit of a tattletale. So Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, and he made him a richly ornamented robe. Well, when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than any of them, they hated Joseph and could not speak a kind word to him. Oh my goodness, the sibling rivalry, the favoritism here, it's just glaring. I mean, can you imagine as a, an, an older teenager, your little brat of a, a brother, your 16-year-old gets a brand new car to drive to school and you're stuck taking the bus, right? 
Oh, it's so infuriating. But it's not just the glaring parental mistakes. What's this about multiple wives going on? Well, we know from scripture that Jacob actually had 13 children by four different women. His Facebook status would have been something like, it's complicated. But we see that Joseph totally buys into the script of being dad's favorite. I mean, who wouldn't? In fact, he starts having these dreams and so he brags to his brothers that someday they are gonna serve him, which was totally a foreign concept in that culture. He didn't have the emotional maturity to understand that this would infuriate them, that this would hurt them. And in fact, his brothers are ambushed by their feelings of anger about this. They too didn't have the emotional maturity to name the emotions and to own them. Instead, they talk with each other and decide that the best course of action is to fake Joseph's death and sell him into slavery. Now, I know you've probably thought about doing that to some of your younger siblings, but hopefully you never carried that plan out. And you might be thinking, what kind of a crazy family is this? Well, in order to understand why they were acting in this way, it might be helpful for us to see the scripts that were handed down to them by their ancestors. Now, their ancestors are people that will sound very familiar to you, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these are the patriarchs of the faith. I mean, they handed down a lot of really wonderful, godly things to their ancestors, but like any family, there was some negative stuff mixed in there too. For example, they passed down a legacy of lying. Abraham and Isaac, both at different points in their life, lied about their wives being their sisters in order to get out of kind of sketchy situations. Jacob, the poor kid, he was named before he was even really fully born, he was named deceiver. That's what Jacob means. So he had that label hanging over him most of his life until God changed his name later on in adulthood. But it wasn't just the lying, it was the favoritism. Abraham favored Ishmael over Isaac. Isaac, in turn, favored Esau over Jacob. And Jacob, as we see, favors Joseph over the rest of his brothers. Then there were the marital problems. I mean, Abraham slept with his servant and it was his wife's idea. Then we have Isaac's wife, Rebecca, who tricks him and manipulates him into giving the birthright away to the wrong son. And then we have Jacob. Jacob had two wives and two concubines. You thought your family was messed up? These people have issues. And so we see that these scripts were handed down to those who were to come after them. So we can kind of begin to see why they acted the way that they did. They had this script that kind of was like, lie, play favorites, manipulate to get what you want. That's what they grew up with. Each family has these kinds of scripts, commandments, thou shalt nots, that are kind of handed down, whether written or unwritten. For you, maybe it was, thou shalt not disappoint your parents by leaving the family business or thou shalt not ever, under any circumstance, talk about sex. Perhaps it was thou shalt not marry a person from a different religion or race, or thou shalt not show weakness by expressing any kind of negative emotion. You know, what commandments about conflict or money or love or value or success were you taught growing up? These are a part of the scripts that were handed to you. And you know, when we become followers of Jesus, we know that we are a new creation. But many times we unknowingly continue to follow these scripts that we internalized as we grew up with our families. And even when they oppose what Jesus actually has to say about things. And sometimes it's easy to identify where those things conflict. If you think about a teaching of Jesus that 
you really kind of struggle with. Maybe you've always struggled with the story of the prodigal son. You just can't understand why that dad would welcome that son back so warmly after the son had spent all of his inheritance. Maybe you align more with the older brother who was so dutiful and obedient all those years and yet never had his dad throw a party for him. Or perhaps when you see Jesus feeding thousands of people for free, that goes against a script that you recited growing up, that nothing in this world for free is for free, that you work for everything, you don't take handouts. That actually flies in the face of the concept of grace, that what Jesus did for us on the cross is, in a sense, a handout. We can't work for our salvation. And so it's important for us to understand that we all have these scripts growing up. And sometimes they go against what Jesus had to say. So while you kind of let that thought settle in a little bit, let's check back in with Joseph. We're going to speed ahead a couple of chapters into chapter 39. Now remember, he had just been sold into slavery. And it says Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, bought Joseph. But the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his master's eyes. And so we see that Joseph was actually favored and he ran this prosperous household, but unfortunately he was accused unfairly of a crime and immediately thrown into jail. Once again, he was betrayed. He was reduced down to nothing. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. The Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Did you catch that common theme? It was God's presence with Joseph, both in, in the high places when he's prospering and when he's being promoted and also in the low places when he's forgotten and betrayed. God is with him. And as the story continues, years go by and Joseph continues to be in prison. But we get a picture of how he is maturing emotionally and spiritually. Once again, dreams enter into the story. Joseph is not having them this time, but a couple of his fellow inmates. And they ask Joseph what they could mean. And Joseph shows great emotional health and wisdom as he interprets these dreams. One, he says, you will be reinstated uh, to your job, your position as Pharaoh's cupbearer. And the other one, well, you're going to meet a very gruesome death. Well, both of those things come true. But as the cupbearer is once again reinstated and being in a place of favor for Pharaoh, he forgets all about Joseph and his plight. How frustrating and how tempting it would be for Joseph to go back to the family script that he had been taught. Lie, play favorites, manipulate to get what you want. He could have sat in that prison for years, just brooding over his unfortunate circumstances, being ambushed by feelings of anger toward his brothers and Potiphar and the cupbearer and even God himself. And yet that is not what Joseph does. He continues to serve. He continues to wait. And he continues to grow emotionally and spiritually for two years. Well, finally, Pharaoh has a dream. This is a dream that's very disturbing. No, of, no one in his uh, official circle can even interpret it. And then the cupbearer remembers, oh, Joseph. Joseph can interpret dreams. And so Joseph is brought into the presence of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, hey, I hear you can interpret dreams. 
Listen to Joseph's response. And remember that his very freedom hangs in the balance. He says, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. In this one sentence, we see over a decade of spiritual and emotional maturing. Remember, this is the boy who boasted to his older brothers, ah, you're gonna serve me someday. But now in this critical moment, he has matured to the point where he, give, he gives God the credit for the ability to interpret dreams. And once again, he refuses to play into that script he was handed, that he is the family favorite, that he's better than everyone else, that he's the center of attention. He saw the harm that that does. Favoritism can destroy families. But because God was with him, Joseph was empowered to write another script. Not me, but God. Well, Joseph goes on to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and he sees that there's a famine coming, this huge natural disaster. And so not as only does he interpret the dream, but he comes up with this plan to prevent mass starvation. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And Pharaoh sees that. And so Pharaoh's response to Joseph's interpretation and his plan and his wisdom, he says, since God has made this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace. God uses Pharaoh, this pagan ruler, in order to write an incredible twist into Joseph's story. He's put in charge of the nation that has enslaved him and unfairly imprisoned him. Now, how many of us finding ourselves suddenly in a position of power would use every scrap of power to get back at those who had wronged us? It'd be so tempting to go back, to lie, play favorites, manipulate. Those scripts come back, I think, in our worst moments and our moments when we're at our highest level of power. It's equally tempting. Yet we see that it was Joseph's God-given wisdom that saves countless lives. And it's also what brought reconciliation with his family. You see, Joseph's brothers and his family were uh, living in a different region, but they too were starving as a result of this famine. And so they come to Egypt to buy grain. Now, Joseph immediately recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. They think he's dead. Joseph doesn't reveal himself right away. He wants to just kind of observe and engage with them to see if they've done any maturing in the years that they've been separated. And through a series of events, he sees that they actually not only feel remorse for what they did for Joseph, but they sacrifice themselves to protect the now youngest brother, Benjamin, who Joseph is still actually meeting for the first time. And so it's amazing to see how when he interacts with them, he has to leave many times to go to a different room and weep, weep. And he's not being ambushed by feelings. This is a healthy process because he's able to name them. He's able to own them, to understand that what he's feeling is the loss, the sadness that comes with the loss of his youth, the loss of years spent with his family, the loss of his culture and his language. And so he's processing that in a really beautiful way and he's living it out. He's replacing that sadness with kindness and with forgiveness. After the famine, he's provided for them. They now live in the best of the land. Uh, their father, Jacob, dies. And the brothers get a little nervous because in their minds, Jacob, dad, was holding it all together, right? Now Joseph is gonna come after us now that dad is dead. And Joseph comes to them and he says in chapter 50, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. 
the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. Once again, Joseph has rewritten that script and he's passing it on now to his brothers. And that script is, it's not me, it's God. Your script can be rewritten. Many of us have had godly legacies handed down to us that we are responsible for continuing. But each and every one of us has had those things handed down to us that are unhealthy from our families of origin. And, and sometimes those things ambush us. But as we move toward emotional health in Jesus, we can learn to name them, we can learn to own them, and through the power of God's presence with us, we can live it out in an emotionally healthy way that just like Joseph and his family can bring reconciliation and healing. For Joseph, that meant being able to say, I know you were trying to hurt me, but God flipped that around and he used it for good, for saving lives. He was able to provide for his brothers who had sold him into slavery. He was able to prosper the nation which had imprisoned him. Why? Because he was so strong? Because he was so righteous? Because he was so wise? No. It was because God was with him. And he gave God the credit for that in the best of times and the most difficult of times. He was able to say, not me, but God. One way that I learned this out in my life is when I quit my job, uh, my teaching position, in order to stay home with a newborn and a toddler. And I knew that this was not going to be easy. But what I didn't realize is that God was going to use that time to rewrite some scripts in my life that were not obedient to him. You see, it was painful. And I just want to say this for anybody who might need to hear it. Postpartum depression is no joke. It can feel like a pit of despair. You know, I had gone from being a professional and making money, being responsible for 125 students a day, coaching sports, engaging with coworkers. I loved my job. I was on the go all the time. And all of a sudden, my life came to what felt like a screeching halt. In some ways, I kind of felt like Joseph. I felt like I went from this favored position to being a slave to two very demanding masters. I felt like I was in charge of all of these people before, and, and then I was imprisoned. I, I felt like I was trapped in my own home sometimes. And yet God was using that time to rewrite scripts in my life. I'm an avid journaler. We've talked about journaling throughout this series, and I really want to encourage you uh, to maybe begin that or continue that as a spiritual practice. It can be so helpful in healing. And so what I would do is I would just write out in my journal a script that I was believing. For example, I might write out, we don't have enough money. That is something that I was struggling with during that time. We had halved our income, we had doubled our family. And so I would say, God, here's what I'm believing. Can you rewrite this? Can you speak into this? And through prayer and, and just a time of worship, he would say something like, Becky, I am with you. I will provide what you need when you need it. And then maybe you're feeling something like this too. I know during that season, I would write out, God, it feels like this season is never going to end. Can you rewrite that script for me? And he would say, oh, sweet girl, I know this is hard, but I am with you. This season will end and the best is yet to come. This third and final script that I struggled with then, and honestly, I'll probably struggle with every season of motherhood, is the script that says, I am not a good 
mom because fill in the blank. There's a million pressures coming to us moms about what we should do, how we should uh, be a mom, what a mom looks like, what a good mom looks like. And so I could have said, I feel like a bad mom because my kids don't eat organic baby food or because I don't know how to homeschool them. I feel like a bad mom because it feels like they're on screens all the time now during this season. Or maybe your script that you're believing is that you're a bad mom because you don't even know how to relate to your kids or talk to your grown children about important things. For things like this that really get at the core of my being, uh, years ago I started this habit where if I really felt like something was uh, just so difficult, it was hard to root it out, when I felt like God was ready to speak to me, I would actually, I still do it to this day, I did it this morning, turn my journal upside down and write what God had to say to me because whatever it was he was saying to me, the script that he was rewriting was the exact opposite of the script that the world had handed me and that I was struggling with. And so when I think about how I have feelings of not being a good mom so many times, Jesus just so sweetly says to me, Becky, Becky, you're concerned about many things, but there's only one thing. The best thing that you can do for your children is to remember that you are my child. Come and spend time with me. Switch burdens with me. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. Just come and be with me. It's so powerful. And in fact, I think that we can take the words that Joseph said to his brothers after they were getting a little anxious um, after their father's death. I think we can look at those words and hear Jesus speaking through Joseph to us with one small but really eternally significant change. Let's go back to chapter 50. It says, don't be afraid. But Jesus doesn't say, am I in the place of God? He says, I am God and I took your place on the cross. They intended to harm me. The, the religious leaders and the Roman government and Satan himself intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And the great news of Christianity is that your family of origin does not determine your future. God does. Throughout the New Testament, it repeatedly tells us that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we become children of God and co-heirs with Jesus. Have you ever thought of Jesus as your older brother? Now, I have two older brothers, uh, and they weren't always necessarily Jesus-like, but they're wonderful, wonderful people. But this is an older brother who always protects, who always provides, in fact, who died for you. When you come to knowledge of Jesus, you know, you do, you get a new status. When you put your faith in him, you go from being an enemy of God, separated by your sin. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, taking our sins upon himself, you have a new status before God. You are righteous. You are forgiven. You are a child. You also receive a new future when you become a follower of Jesus. And I'm not talking about after you die, floating around on a cloud and playing a harp. That is not what your future with Jesus looks like. Your future with Jesus starts now. Eternity begins the moment that you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And let me tell you, it is a future so filled with hope, no matter what your current circumstances are. And, and believers, no matter where they are, what season of life can say, the best is yet to come. But you also receive a new family. 
When you accept Jesus, you gain millions of brothers and sisters across the globe and throughout the centuries, and you are accepted into the family of God. I think it's so interesting, Jesus, once when he was teaching, someone came to him and said, you know, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are here. And he said, my mom and my brothers are in this room. Whoever does the will of the Father is my brother. Whoever does my will is my mother. And moms, he wasn't dissing Mary, I promise you. In fact, one of the last things he did on earth when he was in physical anguish on the cross was to make sure that his mother was provided for. But what he's doing is he's breaking away the confines of a biological family and he's describing the concept of a spiritual family. You know, we honor our parents. We honor our cultures and our histories. But we obey only God. And only God can help us rewrite those unhealthy scripts that we have been given. And so as we think about this week, how to live this out, how to be emotionally healthy people who are discovering wholeness in Jesus, I want you to know that God is with you and that your script can be rewritten. Now, if you're someone who you don't know what it means to come in faith, into faith to Jesus, you don't know anything about him maybe, I wanna encourage you, even right now after this service, to go to our website, watermarkwesleyan.com. On the top, there's a button. It simply says, Knowing Jesus. And if you click that, we'll ask you for some basic information. But within a few days, a pastor from our church will reach out to you. We want to walk with you. We want to help you. We want to just help answer your questions so that you can know what this knowing and following Jesus means and looks like. Let's pray. God, I am just so grateful to you for people like Joseph who can show us that being with you and being in your presence means that we can rewrite scripts that were handed down to us. God, I just pray that each person here would sense your presence. I pray for all of the, the moms. I'm so thankful for those women who raised us, whether it was our biological mom or our grandmothers or an aunt or a spiritual mom who mentored us through difficult seasons. We're so grateful. Would you bless them in this moment? And Father, would you help us to know that you are with us, that you can rewrite scripts, and that the best is yet to come. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.